Hello and welcome to the very first episode of The Shortest Path. I'm your host Yemi Awapetu and in this podcast each week we're going to delve into the minds of corporate professionals, entrepreneurs, creators and other inspiring people to reveal their journey to success. Now this show is about embracing bravery, facing fears and taking action despite feeling uncertain and having these overwhelming emotions. The whole point of this podcast is to help you feel inspired and, you know, encouraged to step out of your comfort zone, take control and achieve your aspirations. My first guest is Marvin Moses. Marvin is a great friend of mine and he is a highly experienced sales and marketing professional with over 13 years in the field. He's currently the partnerships director at a large UK fintech bank. And prior to that, Marvin spent more than a decade at a global financial services company, working his way up through various roles, including head of B2B acquisition, client management, and the director of business development for fintech. Marvin has a strong track record in driving growth and innovation. And as you can tell from this conversation, you can tell that he's very goal-orientated, relationship-orientated, and knows what he wants to get out of life. In this conversation, we talk about the importance of cultivating relationships, um, the importance of how to do it, how, in fact, how to embrace your differences and why that is useful in building connection with your partners, the importance of being personable, the rule number one when it comes to being a leader, what lessons we can learn from the TV show Friends when it comes to feeling the fear, and also even just talking about salary with your friends, the importance of that transparency and what it can mean for you and your and your general career. So without further ado, let's get to the show. You're definitely a man of many, many talents. Because even when I was going through your background and looking at your journey all yeah. the way up to today, there's a word that kept on coming through again and again and again. And it was influence yeah. right and i mean you can correct me if i'm wrong but i feel that word possibly demonstrates a bit about you and what you're capable of doing but i guess how would you describe would you agree with that or how would you describe yourself instead what in terms of being influential yeah i mean i wouldn't say i'm influential as far as christmas dinner was concerned right i was told what the people wanted to eat and i made it happen but definitely in terms of from a professional standpoint I like to be a presence, right? I, I like to be memorable. And if I can influence a decision or be influential to the benefit of the person I'm working with or to myself or the company I work for, I definitely try and be. I think ultimately for me, I am somebody, if I was using a word, the thing that I would love to be described as is, is impact, right? I don't, I don't, I'm not a sit in the back sort of person. I'm not a see as we go, see how it goes person. I'm somebody that wants to make an impact or I shouldn't be there. Time is very valuable. My kids are growing up really fast. So it's about making an impact. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice. And I guess as you're doing your impact, you have a lot of relationships that are around you. How important would you say those relationships are for you and how have you been able to cultivate them over time? Uh, well, professionally, I think relationships are the most important thing, right? And as an example, uh, one of the jobs I did, I was a client manager. So I had a certain amount of accounts and 
I looked after them. So whatever they needed, they came to me and I would delegate or I would, I would help them with whatever they need. And what was really interesting to me was how people treated relationships. So I worked with colleagues who had their own accounts and would do what needs to be done. Um, but they wouldn't, they didn't see the benefit of cultivating a relationship, whereas I'm very different. So if you imagine that job was eight years ago and of those 30 clients, I mean, they changed, but like five, six of them are still on my phone. We're talking about football. We're talking about one of them just relocated to Dubai and we were still in contact like that. And one of the best examples is that when I met them for the first time, let's say we were having a hot, an hour chat, I know other colleagues would come in and say, this is what I want to talk to you about, or this is what I want to hear from you. And the first thing I'd say is, before we get cracking, like, tell me about yourself. Like, who do you, are you a football person? Are you a cricket person? Have you got a family? Where do you live? Blah, blah, blah. And those would be the first notes in the book. And, you know, if I hadn't spoken to them in a while and they were a Tottenham fan, and Tottenham lost or won, I would just check in and go, good win. And I think being very personable really helped me connect with them. And, you know, if you look at the results and what I was able to achieve with them, I think it all starts with relationships. Plus, you never really know how somebody's going to rock up somewhere else, right? So I've got one client, for instance, that started as a client of mine. I became a client of his. I'm in a different role, now a client of his. We've gone out on lots of social events and you know, he'll probably work for me, I'll probably work for him somewhere down the line. So I think it's, it's really important. And, you know, I don't know if I can I swear. Yeah, go for it. Go for well, it's not a swear word, but I mean, some of the one of the best pieces of advice somebody gave me for being a leader and, and managing relationships is just don't be a dick, right? And that's, that's the mantra I've lived by, because I've seen people who for some reason, just don't understand that being a nice person mm -hmm. is so valuable to a relationship. And like, you know, if there's a, Marv, can you do this? And it, we, in theory, we can't do it. Others would just be like, no. Whereas I'm like, let me come back to you. Let me try and figure out a way. It might not be perfect, but it's that. And just going the extra mile and being nice and, and being the sort of person that will bat for your client or for the person you're partnering with is just so important. Yeah. I, I always wonder because um, like being personable, having that relationship with your partners is always so key. I do wonder, there's there, is there like a tipping point where you have personal versus professional and then being able to maintain that kind of, um, that, that, the armor separation as it were, so yeah. things don't get too, a bit too entangled. And even like your own personality, because I remember my first time, like I remember many, many times in my career, like the first time I was on a client call, um, I was just listening in, mm -hmm. so I didn't have to say anything. But then the second time, this is when I actually got moved into a more partnerships role from moving from finance. And um, my boss at the time, excellent. Like he was well polished, like spoke the Queen's English, everything was amazing. And when I got onto the call speaking to my partners, they were in Romania, for example, um, I wasn't myself. I was trying to emulate my mm -hmm. boss at the time. so. When I done that, it kind of took me off my swing and I no longer had that kind of charm or bit of swagger, as it were, when you're having that conversation with them. And it took some a while for me to find my own personal style, as it were, but I didn't end up embedding them into my own personal relationship. So I guess, like, how do you find the right balance between when you can be personal, professional, 
or does it vary from client to client? It varies from client to client, but I think there's a lot in, in transparency, right? So although I've said, you know, I'll try and go the extra mile and I'll try and figure it out, sometimes I come back and say, just can't do it, <laughs> right? Like it, it can't be done. But being transparent as here are the blockers or the hurdles that's prevented me from delivering that. And I think to your point, like I remember it was, it's only like, I'd say only about two, three years, somebody told me about the thought of like code switching. And you talk about like speaking the Queen's English and my wife used to wind me up about it back in the day. Cause like she could tell who was on the phone. So if, if someone, one of, if a friend rang me, I'd be like, yo, what are you saying? And if some, if I'm kind of, hi, Marvin speaking, right. It changes, but. I think a lot of it is down to confidence, right? So you mentioned it was when you moved from finance to, to being more of a partner facing role. Whereas with me, like my first partner facing role was kind of like in a marketing space. But as I've grown and I've got older, it's kind of like believing in your own source, right? And I think being comfortable in your own skin, even if it's not the Queen's English and particularly professional, a person, can really trust someone who they feel is being their authentic self, right? And like, to be honest with you, I'm a terrible liar. I'm a terrible, I, I almost can't fake stuff, yeah. right? And there's been clients that, I mentioned there's clients I stayed in contact with, there's clients I met where the vibe just wasn't right. So you then, to your point, it is the balance because then it was, you know, how can I make sure I still give this person the best service and, 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 and ensure that I'm, I don't drop anything. But clearly, the, from a sort of personal level, the connection's not there. So you, you do swing a little bit. Like, if I walk into a door and I'm, I'm a big Man United fan, someone's like, oh, man, did you see that game? Or, I'm a, or they tell me I'm a big Man United fan. Already, I'm just like, at least there's a common ground yeah. from the beginning. Um, so I think it's about, it's about being very, not overly confident, because I think there's a balance between confidence and arrogance. but just believing in yourself and, and being authentic, I think that's so important when you're, when you're thinking about partnership stuff. Do you remember your first like partnership meeting? I remember my first partnership meeting and it wasn't great to be honest. Um, and the reason why it's very similar to what you said is the, I, I attended some meetings where I was a fly on the wall and I watched how somebody would pitch and the first times that the first time that I did it, I tried to emulate their cadence, their flow, how they relied on like visual aids versus conversation. And I think the meeting went fine, but to your point, it didn't feel authentic for me. And like by the fourth meeting that I did, the difference between the first and the fourth were light years because I found my own cadence, my own patter, and actually. I felt like quite a few people use visual aids as a crutch. So unless there's some specific data I need to share, it's always a chat. And actually the negative feedback about myself was always, I'm terrible at taking notes because I'm so in the moment, I want to talk. So making notes is not what I want to do. So I then, do, I then developed like a real shorthand and once the meeting was done, I'd make proper notes because my memory's terrible, but it's all about engagement, right? And actually, things like COVID and as the world has changed, it's become a lot more difficult to connect with people because, you know, most of the work I got done internally was me rocking up to your desk and saying, <laughs> I need this or can you help me with that? And now even some of the promotions I received is where somebody that's promoted me, we just go out for an ad hoc coffee or a, or a lunch and all of that went away. And the same with clients and pitching, 
you're no longer in a room having a chat. It's like a fixed time. I think people have too many meetings now. They're just back to back because they're just sitting at home. So there's, there's, there's some development that's had to organically happen as the way we work in business, basically. Yeah, because I was going to ask that because now that we've got into a more digital world, everything's yeah. online, yeah. you can't walk up to people's desks. I've even gone up to clients. Maybe they're not as open as they yeah. were to going up to meetings and yeah. going up to dinners and yeah. so on and so forth. How have you adapted? And yeah, how have you adapted first? I'll ask that. You know what? I, to be honest with you, I've just taken as much as I can face-to-face -face onto the screen, right? So like even I recently moved house and um, the curtains behind me in my office are terrible. And like in terms of the prioritization of what needs to get done in the house, like it keeps out the sunlight and it keeps my privacy. So I'm like, I'll get around to that. But that's become a conversation piece, right? So, you know, when I meet people for the first time on the phone, I'll be like, excuse the curtains, like, just moved house, blah, blah, blah. And I'll talk about that. That's a nice way to break the ice. Yeah, it's just about, I, and you want to make, whether you're selling something or you're looking after somebody from a relationship perspective, it's all about being your authentic self, but also making sure they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I feel like part of that is like leadership as well, where I've managed big teams, small teams, and one size doesn't fit all. And you need to learn how somebody wants to engage with you, still keep your authentic self, but be able to, to make them feel comfortable, right? I, you know, there's, there's many introverted and many extroverted people. And like, there's, uh, there's introverted people that are just the, the smartest minds I've ever come across, but they're not very vocal. And, you know, actually a lot of the correspondence I have with them is just emails back and forth, but they still see the value. So it's just about, you know, making it a bit fun. I mean, if I ever stood up, you'd probably see like a smart polo and then basketball shorts, right? But it's, 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 just, about, it's just about trying to build a rapport at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And is that what you tell your team? Like, especially if they're new to sales and business development, because it's such an intimid intimidating role yeah. if you're completely new to it, yeah. um, because you have to be able to take rejection straight on the chin. Yeah. You have to understand that not everybody will like you. And some people just want to have that transactional kind of um, relationship with you. So like, has that, how do you try and develop or teach your team about that? Well, I think there's a few things there, right? I think the first thing is, I mean, I've been working now for about 14 years. And I think the term business development or sales has changed dramatically. So if I, le if I look at some salespeople that I worked with before me, like I, I guarantee they're not selling stuff anymore okay. or the quality, the type of product they're selling has changed because I think when people think sales, they think like used car salesmen, like get in the car and have a feel, you'll love it, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And now, and it sounds really cliche, but people buy people, right? Yeah. And now it's, it's kind of, I would see sales as not just selling what you have, it's listening to the challenge that somebody has and seeing if your product fits what they need and there's been many times in the last five years where I've gone you know what based on this conversation I've got nothing for you but I'd love to stay in contact right there might be something and and there's been instances where something has changed and I think you know I do think that a, a certain type of sales persona cannot be taught right I think it's ingrained into how somebody had is from a personality standpoint but particularly for new people um, entering the space, the three pieces of advice I always give is know your product inside out, right? Like there should be no gray areas. 
but always somebody's going to catch you off guard. So know who you can lean on. If there's a product specialist or someone else you need to bring in, just make sure you have the answers, right? Even if they're not the answers the customer wants to hear, make sure you have that, right? The second one goes back to what I said about just being authentic. People can see right through people nowadays, right? And I don't know if it's just the world overall is a lot less trusting or it's a lot more saturated. Like there's very few new things, right? There's, there's, there's different versions of the same thing, but that's being authentic is, is really important because you want people to be able to trust you. And then I think the last thing is goes back to your point is you kind of got to prepare yourself for rejection, right? I don't, I don't take it to heart. And I, I, the, the funny, the way I always articulate it, it's like when you were at school and you were chatting up girls, right? You did, not every girl loved you, or maybe they loved you, yeah, but uh, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't love me, right? So being able to, for the girl to say, no thanks, uh, and then and being able to move on. It's like once you get the one rejection out, yeah. you're like, oh, my shackles are off me, yeah. I'm free now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, right, nobody's perfect, right? So not every girl's going to say yes, and not every customer's going to say yes. So being thick-skinned and not letting... I think the worst ones is like when you're really far down the sales pipeline, you think this person is going to buy from you. You've already accounted for it in terms of your performance for the quarter, whatever. And then they've just gone, oh, we've had a change of, you know, change of uh, focus. And, and that, those ones hurt, but it's about A, not putting all your eggs in one basket with one sale and, and making sure you've got a breadth of conversations at different stages of the pipeline, but also just being aware that People's circumstances change, right? It's how you manage that. So I've been like, fine. If things change, let me know. Not like we've done all this work. Do you know what I mean? Like you've got to, you've got to not take it too personal. And you know, ultimately, unless it's your own company, it's a job, yeah. right? And you know, it's it, you know, you've just got to be able to to be able to be quite resilient, particularly in sales. I think for relationship, when you do it, when you're not actually selling, but you're looking after somebody from a relationship standpoint authenticity is still really, really important, but also just being very approachable and communication. So I don't think people should work long hours, but I think people should work smartly, right? So for me, to your point about like COVID and coffee, there's been times when I've looked in my diary two weeks away and I've gone, I've got to meet, I've got to meet that person at 11 o'clock and I've gone, how do you want to do this? Do you want to just grab a coffee? Like, how, how do you want to do this? Because it's just about being personal ones and sometimes people have to do meetings but like I had a quota of people I had to meet a month but you can you that can, feel quite restricting it's not actually it's fun because for me because I'm quite a personal person actually the worst sort of week for me is when I'm at my desk five days a week I like to get out I like to meet people I don't mind even being on the train like I remember when I used to do lots of travel I just load lots of shows on my iPad, sit on the train, go and meet someone. And like, there'd be times I'll never forget. There was one time where I traveled a round trip of four hours for a half an hour meeting and it was fine. Yeah, but would you do that now? Uh, if, if I felt there was going to be value on both sides or one side, I would do it. But just don't look to see me at 10 o'clock because I'm not doing it at that early. But I think also, you know, I think with meeting people like especially in sales non-verbal is so important like i've i can i think i can tell within the first 10 minutes whether there's anything here but what's the what's the telltale signs 
Well, the t well, some of the telltale signs is just eye contact. Whether I'm in the room with you or whether you're on the on the laptop, if I can see your eyes flicking around on the laptop, I know you're multitasking and I know you're not really present. And sometimes I'll just be an ass and I'll be like, does that make sense? Or how do you feel about that? Just to see how disengaged they are. And if they're super disengaged, then the slides that I had because I'm driving them, I might just skip through a few. Let's just get through this meeting because the engagement is not there. I also think just being nice. Like I went all the way to a place called, oh, I can't remember what it was called now. Um, but I remember I had to change at Doncaster. It was a terrible journey. It was, in hum it was near Hull somewhere. And the person did not like what I was telling them, right? Because I think we were, I think basically they wanted a cheaper price and I couldn't give it to them. I traveled all that way and straight away I knew it was going to be a diff I knew it was going to be a difficult meeting but imagine you know when you get to a train station you just think oh I'll just take a taxi from there yeah. when I got to the train station it's just like some residential area and uh, there was no taxis and there was no internet service so I couldn't even like call an Uber I had to go into the local pub and say can you call me a taxi and the guy was so helpful because lots of people do it because it's like just away from the train station, like a commercial park where these, this company was, was based. So it was just a terrible journey. And I said, I said, I remember saying to, um, to the client, I said, wow, it's like, I didn't expect you to be here. They didn't offer me a drink. They, the meeting was for an hour. When we sat down, he said, I've got a hard stop. Like the energy wasn't, wasn't there. But some, you know, you got to take the rough with the smooth, right? So, it, you know, I'm, I'd rather I'd rather be in the room and try and crack them. And the best ones are the ones that, like, one of the people that I'm still in contact with hated my guts when I, when I first started because his view was um, that he just didn't like the company. He he saw us as a necessary evil. He he had to to keep his business going. He needed the services we had but ultimately it didn't matter if it was me or someone else that walked through the door there was going to be tension but by the end by articulating the things that he, i knew he didn't know about and given where i could discount it or give it to him for free so he could experience it now we're friends i mean he's a liverpool fan so we're not that tight um but but i think it's 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 trying like the best wins are when you make a bad relationship good, right? Because those are the real difficult ones to do. So I guess if you look back, right, like there's all these telltale signs that you've kind of developed over time, which really can't really be taught to you. Well, I, no, I think some of them can be taught. Okay. Um, like reading non-verbals, there's been times when I've taken my team to a meeting and at the end I've gone, how do you feel that went? And they've gone, oh, I think it went all right. And I was like, well, did you see how he looked at his phone when you were doing the pitch, blah, blah. So I think there's, you can steer people to teach, but in terms of what I think can't be taught is there's a certain type of individual where they're very driven by themselves. And when they get into the room, they've got an energy that's infectious and, and, and that can't always be taught. And actually when I've interviewed people for teams that I've managed, I know if I'm gonna like you in the first five minutes, even, even if you're nervous and nerves are absolutely fine. I've been nervous a million times in my career, but how you channel it and how, and sometimes I can just see the subtle switches in people's energy. And it sounds really cliche, but you know, just being that person, I almost could, I compare it to like a conference. You know, when you're in a conference and you, try, you see everyone's name badge, yeah. 
you can see people who are excited about going, hey, what do you do? Yeah. Versus people that just look at the name badge and mm-hmm. they just feel awkward. And there's nothing wrong with those people. It's just personality types. But when you're talking about engaging with people, that, hey, what do you do person is probably going to get you some, is going to give you a characteristic that you can't see. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I guess in your history or your, your career journey, like from university, even before that, mm. when did you know that you were good at convincing people to do stuff? It's a really good question. So I didn't want to do sales. Do you know that? I didn't know. I did not want to do sales. I didn't want to do relationships. The funny story, and I tell everyone this story, is I did my degree in marketing and I watched a film, a Mel Gibson film called What Women Want. And he did this pitch at the end so he can like read women's thoughts and like blah, blah, blah. And he was a, he was like a salesperson at a creative, well, he wasn't a salesperson, he was a marketing director at a creative agency. And it ends with him doing this phenomenal pitch to Nike about female clothes. And because he started reading people, women's thoughts, that's how it all pieces together as he now understands women. So he can pitch to Nike about what sort of athletic wear and why it's so important. And he has an advert behind him. And I thought, I want to do that. And that's what, that, believe it or not, that's what dictated me doing a marketing degree. I was like, I want to do creative stuff. But when I, I, I graduated in the financial crisis, just coming out of the financial crisis, a Lehman's had just gone bust or whatever, and there was no jobs. So the first job I could get was I was a recruitment agent and the money was good. And because we were coming out, recruitment was starting to just sort of take off. So for, for a grad, the money was decent. I hated it because I felt like recruitment kind of encourages bad practice. So as an example, if I'm doing temp recruitment and I don't get my full bonus until you've passed your probation, but you've called me two months in and gone, I hate the job. In my mind, I'm in that conflict of, can I keep you past probation to get my bonus or do I encourage you and start looking for work for you, right? But I think there's two things. A, I hated it because your performance was could, could encourage by a practice. But it helped me because all I did was register candidates and cold call companies for jobs. Um, but I then got a marketing job after that. And after a while, I was like... Was it difficult to get that tra- to make that transition from it, recruitment to marketing? It, well, you know, it's funny. I was actually a good recruiter. I just didn't enjoy it. Okay. And I think I was good because I could relate to people and I could... I was quite good at matchmaking. Mm. So I guarantee like, they, they joke about people only look at your CV for 10 seconds or whatever. I would literally speak to a client about a job, understand the keywords. What does he... What does this individual really need is it like is it prince two is it a degree in x and literally i would just control find your cv so if you've got prince two training but you haven't put it your cv is not going in front of that person right because time is short I'm, I'm sifting cvs all the time so that when i then made the move to marketing i realized the job that mel gibson was doing in that film was for an agency and agencies get really bad treatment by clients, right? So I went in-house and all I was doing was managing Mel Gibson's rather than Mel Gibson's myself. And then I started the company. I just, I remembered the time as a recruiter and I was always selling like my part-time jobs. I sold TVs at Comet, PCs at PC World. I was always selling and 
I just, it came natural to me. So like PC World, I think was my first sales job. It just opened in, uh, on Old Kent Road. And um, like people just bought stuff. You're just good with it. It, I, I, it sounds really arrogant, but it was like, I had a pattern that worked and I didn't lie to you. I would say that computer shit, but if you only got a budget of 300 pounds, that's the best I've got in the, in, in the store. And between doing those part-time jobs and making like, what was funny is um, my commission at PC World was more than my basic because one of the things that you got paid tons of, and sorry, PC World, but you got, you, you got lots of bonus for selling insurance. And, and selling insurance was easy to me because I would look at you and you got some kids, you got a dog. What if that dog hits that laptop and like people going to uni, stolen, all, all of that. And I used to, so I remembered that sales experience from those part-time jobs. The recruitment thing was easy for me. And actually the marketing thing is the thing I didn't like. So as the jobs presented itself, I just moved further away from marketing and more to being in front of partners. Plus I've got a very short attention span, right? So the fact that I said being at my desk five days a week, marketers do do that, right? Whereas a sales individual or a relationship individual is seeing people face to face. So it was just a, a natural thing for me. Yeah, I like that. Cause I feel when you're in those relationship roles, you have the ability to just like work with different people, yeah. have different personalities, sitting at your desk. Like for me as well, I'm, I'm not motivated by that. Like I'm more motivated by speaking to people, hearing their problems, finding out a way in order, in order for it to be sold. Um, my early sales experience would have been oof, selling like cookies, crisps, even chicken in secondary school. Do you know what? It's <laughs> funny you should say that, right? So my mum, I used to get two pounds a day yeah. for, for lunch, right? And actually back then, which would have been like late 90s, that was all right. Like you could buy like you a piece a of- Yeah, pounds, you could get a lot for two yeah. pounds, but- my mum, and I, to this day, I think it was the most ridiculous way of doing things. My mum used to say, whatever you don't spend on lunch is your pocket money. Mm. There wasn't like a 10 pound at the end of the week. It was like, however much you starve yourself is what you can keep, right? So then what happened is I would might be left with like 20p at the end of the day or whatever. And I just go out and buy sweets with it. So she'd just be like, why are you buying all these sweets? Like, and I was like, well, you know, it's, it's, yeah. It's pretty, well, no, at the time it was like, Oh, it was just for you? It was like, for me. But then she was, she, my mum then thought, you know what? I need you to start saving your money. So there's always going to be sweets in the house. So on top of the fridge, there was chew it, there was refreshers, whatever. And I took that and sold it. Because I, like, I didn't like sweets enough. But because you just had 20p, you thought, well, what can I do with 20p? Up, yeah. So then, and, it, and I remember the penny dropped. And this is making me sound terrible, but the penny dropped. Like I would sell a packet. So... My mum was buying the chew it, so it's pure profit for me, right? But I started selling like a pack of chew it's for like 50p. And then I realized I could sell individual chew it's for 10p, right? So, so that's how you, you, you build it. it yeah. And I remember my, um, a good friend of mine used to, we used to joke about only fools and horses. Like we used to sell everything. As bad as it sounds, I remember, oh, this is going to make me sound terrible. But I remember we used to get like lads mags and cut out pictures of girls and sell the pictures of the girls to people. No, and it, I've never heard of that one before. And it was a, it was a Catholic school. Serious. It was a Catholic school. <laughs> so the value went up, right? So, so that's, that's, um, that's, what, that's what we used to do. And then it just got ridiculous where basically I never, I was eating all the sweets, mm. selling those, and the 10 pounds I'd have for the week 
would be ten pounds that never got broken. So I was yeah, making your pocket. And my mum was my mum was being fleeced by me, but I was providing a service and it, it was fine. And what I realised was how lazy people are, and that stayed with me because they could go to the shop yeah. and buy, but because they were running late or because they knew I had some sweets or whatever, they would come and buy from me at a premium. It's so true. Like yeah, because for me, I I used to wake up early. Go Sainsbury's, yeah. buy like four of those one pound cookies, like yeah. white chocolate, you get five for a pound. Yeah. Go to school. No one is like there because I'm early. Yeah. And then from, the, from there, I'm selling it in the playground, like one cookie for 40p, making two times profit. But you know what? The crazy thing was for me is I remember I was like 12 and my mum took me to Macro. And what was crazy for me is Macro is where all these news agents shop. And what was crazy for me was it would always have the cost per unit. And I'll never forget, like a Walker's box of crisps was like 29p in the shop at the time. And at Macro, it was 11p. And I was just like, mum, just buy a box of crisps for the family. Do you know what I mean? And I was selling it for like 40p. So yeah, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely, you, I think lots of sales individuals, people have like little nuggets of where they, where they think. But yeah, I'm, I always call myself a failed marketeer. It just wouldn't work for me. Like it was all about... I like, I like to look back at the end of the year, even to now and go, what impact did I make? How much did I make the company? How much did I make myself in commission? And that's how I've always done it. So then like throughout your career, because you went to marketing, then you went into more like client management yeah. facing, then you set up your own, like take me through the steps because you set up your own team. with Yeah, Bank. So, so basically the thing that excites me most is launching stuff. So the first sort of uh, partnership role we were launching a new offers platform. So we, so I did that and I did that for a couple of years, but then it just got saturated. Like we, we scaled the team and I became, I always say like, always be learning, right? Don't always be the teacher. And I'd sort of reached the point. And then I got promoted and moved into client management where I had 30 accounts where I looked after them. And that's the bit I loved because you're almost like running your own little mini business, right? Those 30 accounts would come to me for everything. And if it was, a fraud issue or whatever they I would I would I would mediate and and connect them with the right people within our company and I actually did only left that role because both my boss and my boss's boss left and I was like this is a perfect time to do something different rather than have to re not rebrand myself but like uh be like get that sort of engagement and traction with new leadership I thought that was the time to move so then I moved into a partnership role where my responsibility was to encourage companies to give us free stuff that we could give to our customers, right? Um, I did that, but I didn't love it because the one thing, when I talk about impact, the one thing that I hate is bureaucracy. Like I hate having to, I'd, I'd much rather spend time doing something than telling people internally what I'm doing and getting alignment. So then I moved into a new Create, newly created team working for a former boss of mine where we were launching an open banking product, totally new to the company, never been done before. And that was really interesting because that was only a secondment role. My wife was pregnant with our second kid and basically the role I was, the partnership role I was doing was basically saying, if that secondment role doesn't work out, we won't have a job for you. So go on, do your thing, Playboy, but just be aware if it doesn't work out there, you're out of a job. Um, and I had a conversation with my wife and she was just like, just go for it. Like you'll, 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 you'll figure it out. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Like, the, you know, there'll be other jobs. I went there and actually, because it was like a mini startup, there's only three of us that were really working on it. 
it just blew up overnight. And we, I did a few early sales to the point where the leadership was like, I, I basically went, we need to scale this quickly because it's, it's a bit of an arms race. Like it, the product wasn't unique, but it was innovative. Um, and then I got promoted and then I scaled the whole team. So we went from three of us to 16 of us and two of us in the US. Um, so I scaled that team and then COVID hit. And that's when it became really difficult to sell something. Everyone, no one wanted to invest in their product. They just wanted to keep the lights on. And I sort of thought, you know what? I'm going to move. So I moved into a, a, a B2B team that was actually tasked with uh, softening the blow of COVID. So my responsibility there was thinking of uh, making new revenue streams for the company. Um, I did that. And then I got, I realized I was really bored. I realized I'd been at that company for 11 years and I thought, you know what, it's time to go. So I jumped two feet into the fintech world. I've been in, in the fintech world now for about six months and it's just like a totally different uh, environment. But I think what's really interesting about that is a lot of that bureaucracy I talk, I talk about is almost, it's, just, it's non-existent, right? And actually the skill set that I've developed over the last 14 years uh, is a skill set that a lot of the people in the organization don't have because they've been building something from the ground up and you know doing partnerships and things isn't something they thought about so it's a win-win because I felt like I was getting too indoctrinated to the old corporate structure and I was I was learning I was learning new stuff so as I said always be learning but um, I was also being able to impart experience over my 14-year career and 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 give a different perspective so it's, it's early days but I'm loving it and it's just a, it's one of those things where especially at my age it's one of those things where I could have stayed at the other company for years and just become part of the furniture or I could test myself and and, and really like I think what's really interesting about fintech is there's not there's there's defined jobs but everybody does a little bit different I mean my job spec changed in the in the first two months and i was cool with it so it's it's, it's pretty interesting and i guess because we've throughout your career um it sounds amazing that you've been able to try different things yeah. and continually push yourself sometimes that's not always possible mm. especially if the money's not right yeah and you may not necessarily feel valued because if i was in your shoes for example where you're taking a secondment role because what you're doing currently isn't pushing you into the right direction mm. And now they're saying that there might not be a job for you. Coming yeah. back, it's like, do you guys even want me here? Do you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, have you ever had to have those tough conversations internally? Like using your, your charm, your charisma to kind of making sure that you're still being valued. Because especially you can go anywhere else yeah, yeah. and they'll value you more. Yeah. And actually, I, I used to be a massive Friends fan. Right. And I, there's an episode that stayed with me. Like uh, Chandler did some random job. I don't actually know what he did, but he did some data job. And he was bored of it. He didn't like it. And I remember Joey saying to him, you need the fear, right? So just quit and push yourself to go in a different direction. And I've had, I, I remember it like yesterday, I had one instance where I was consistently the top performer in my team. I'd won some awards, it was great. But because I'd been promoted through that company, I was underpaid. Because what happens is big companies have their their sort of mantras of, you know, if you get promoted, you get a 10% bump. 
Meanwhile, because if, the earlier you start, especially if you start like as a grad, oh, you're finished. <laughs> you're, you're finished. And that's why people should move, right? I, I, I truly believe in the value. And I remember, I'll never forget it. Um, I was out drinking with my team and they just, we just had like a big meeting and they basically told us we had to do some more admin heavy stuff that nobody wanted to do. And then I was drinking, we were having a drink and everyone was like, oh, that's going to be a pain. Like clients aren't going to like that. And a newbie who had been there for six months, who was a nice person, but like wasn't a, like a high performer, I would say. She was like, doing all of that for X amount, like it's not even worth it. And when she said that X, I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. This woman's on 20 Gs more than me. Literally as drunk as I was, when I got home, I did my CV and I started applying for jobs. No one's going to make a fool out of me, right? Like I was, I was, I was pissed. And um, I got interviewed straight away. I got a new job at like a, a 30, 40 pound, a 30, 40 grand bump. Um, because I was a bit, you know, a bit of poetic license with how much I was getting paid. I basically used her salary as what I was on. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, um, and then that was it. Like I, I, I kid you not. I was just waiting for the perfect time to resign. And actually, I, I, I just won another award where I was going to travel with the company. But while this was all going on, I was by, step by step clearing out my locker. I was out the door. I won the award and I said, oh, it's great that I've won the award, but I resigned. And they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, I feel like I'm significantly underpaid. I've got a job that is paying me what I think I'm were worth. Were you ready to go or was that a negotiation? My locker was empty. I was ready to go. And I think you need to be ready to go. I feel like it's a dangerous game. And I'm saying this as a leader. I think it's a dangerous game to hedge your salary on a job you don't want to leave. I think you can be a bit more like, just FYI, like, I love what I do, but I feel underpaid, blah, blah, blah. But if you feel truly underpaid, then it's about knowing your worth. So I was ready to go. And it was another big company and the money was good and it was closer to home. And I think partly because I was so high profile by that point, they were just like, oh, let's see what we can do. Let's see what so we can do. They had to keep you. And, um, and when they came back with the number and there was some extra perks, because I realized, you know, it's all about leverage. So I was like, yeah, and you know what? My holiday days, like, they have, like, 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 just push the envelope. And I'm sure the person I was negotiating with, I think he hates me for it, but he's, he's, his hands were kind of tied. But I blame him because actually not long after I started applying for jobs, I did have a one-to-one -one with him. And I said to him, look, I'm underpaid here. And he said, I'll look into it. I'll come back to you. And he never did. And to me, I didn't feel, I feel like he was just giving me lip service. And I wasn't giving him lip service. I was ready to go. I told him where I was going. I told him, you know, blah, blah, blah. They came back with a really great package. And even then I was still on the fence because mentally I'd prepared myself to go. And I didn't know whether I could get back into the groove. Um, but luckily it all worked out. And the funny story about that was the person in the other company who offered me the job ended up at the same company as me. So I would have gone and worked for him and he would have come and now who knows who I would have worked for at that company. So definitely it's about the, the value of yourself and, and being willing to, even if it's a good thing, if, if you're not, if you don't feel like you're getting the value. And actually, I think I should be on more money right now because I stayed at that company for 14 years, right? I've got friends who graduated at the same time as me who've done three years here, four years there, five years there and, 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 and bounced up in salaries a lot better. Like negotiations don't just work in sales. It's, you're negotiating for yourself and, you know, 
bonuses and things like that are so important. No, I hear that. And I think especially with you as a leader now, you see the importance of actually doing right by your team. Yeah. And not paying lip service and actually encouraging them to be the best that they can be and making sure that they are valued. I think that's the key thing. Yeah, and it comes back to authenticity. The amount of times I said to my team, look, this is my idea. Is it terrible? Tell me, right? And, and when we have like career progression conversations, the one rule I set them is we're not talking about day-to-day -day work. We're talking about where you want to be and how I get you there. And I think it's the worst sorts of leaders that go, oh, I'm going to lose Marv and he's irreplaceable. So I'm just going to keep him stuck. I'm not going to sponsor him and support them for the role. And I've been that person. So I'm determined not to be that person for my team. And like even one of the first people I managed, we're still in contact. He worked for me maybe six years ago and he rang me and he's now a director and being promoted and he was like you're one of the first people I called and I was like yeah let's talk about how you can get me some discount how you can get me into those events that you're now going to be managing so it's, it's about that right and I think managing a team I remember coming into it I thought it was going to be easy managing a team is the hot or managing a person is the hardest thing ever because you've got a duty of care to them in their career you've also got your own goals and an objective and you you've got to almost be a bit of a confidant, like I, I managed one person who broke up with their girlfriend, someone else who was going through like, I didn't have somewhere to live and renting in London is really expensive. So you've also got to be able to, you know, trust that, you know, they, they've got to trust you and you've got to be able to say, look, if you, if you need to go and see some flats, like we don't have to put it through the system, just go and see some flats. I just want you to have a thing whereas Going back to that thing about don't be a dick, I remember the company I was at, they used to give you free days like in the summer. And basically they were saying they're summer days because we know you work hard, you know, you're, you're accrue some days that you can take and there were some rules about it. And my team, when they came to me, they'd just be like, I'm taking a summer day or they'd, they want a week off to take four holiday days and a summer day. And that was it. I was like, cool, like enjoy yourself. Like it's your right. And I heard other instances where other leaders were like, in order for you to take that summer day, you need to show me the extra hours that you've worked and accrued. And I was just like, just be, nice. just be a nice, don't be a dick. Like what, what is it, what this, what is it, how is it impacting you that you need to be so like maniacal about that? It just doesn't make sense. You're almost going out of your way to not have a good relationship with the people that work for you. And then when, when those people don't view you in a positive way, they won't go the extra mile. And I think that's really important, right? No, I hear that, I hear that. Marvin, we could be here talking for so much. I've got like so many more questions to ask you as well. So we'll probably have to do a part two yeah, at some yeah. point because um, I'd really love to explore a little bit more around like the fintech world, you yeah. know, what you see is coming up and even just more about what kind of motivates and drives you to be better every single day. Um, and I have one question lastly though. Go for it. If you had to pick one person, dead or alive, to have a conversation with, 30 minutes, who would it be? Oh, dead or alive. Do you know what? If I was going to have a conversation, what, in terms of helping my career or just yeah, who I wanted to chat to? conversation about anything you want. Do you know what? If I, if I could pick anyone, it would be Malcolm X. And the reason for that was, like, his battle with religion and family and jail and everything. He just seems like an interesting person. Like, I had a debate with someone about Martin Luther King and things like that, but... Malcolm X would give you the gritty with the smooth. So that, that would be interesting. And then football, I'm a big, I'm a big football fan. So Sir Alex Ferguson, because I've seen, I've read his book, I've seen lots of documentaries. Like 
there's benefits on just being a very strong-willed individual. So those are two that would be would be good for me. Would you take 10 million or would you meet those guys? I'd take 10 million. <laughs> those people that... <laughs> all the experience and insight they've got, you can get from books. They're not going to give you 10 million. So let me get my 10 million and then I'll start, you know, by that time I'll just do my own thing. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I yeah. hear that. Yeah. Marvin, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers.